Welcome to the Experience Christian Church Message Podcast. We are a church startup based out of Exton, Pennsylvania, committed to giving the community a fresh start with God and with church. Our mission is to help people experience God's love in a practical way. We would love to connect with you. Would you text ECC info to 94000 or go to our website, experiencecc.org for more information and to learn how you can be a part of our community. Enjoy today's message. Hello, Experience. I'm Matt Silver, one of the pastors here on staff, and thank you for joining us today and investing your time. We're in week two of our series, Things Jesus Didn't Say. And this series is based on the Gospel of John, and there are a lot of great ways for you to participate and plug in. We're encouraging everyone to read the book of John together, five chapters a week. We provided this book at Easter, but if you would like a copy because you missed getting one, or if you're in a household that doesn't share well, we'd be happy to send you one. Just email us at info at And the cool thing about this copy is that it has great footnotes and commentary that helps us understand how to apply this text into our lives. We're encouraging those of you that want a gold star, yes, a gold star, metaphorically, of course, to read all the footnotes every day as well. We want to see you underline, highlight, write some notes in the margin. This is sent for you to use. You can also share your thoughts with others on our online Facebook group or bring them to our Tuesday evening masterclass. This masterclass is led by Drs. Lee and Pat Magnus, and they are bringing the heat. It has been great. We've only had one week. So it's plenty of time for you to jump in there and join the fun. There's a sign-up link in the chat and description in the link to this service. So why have you read this entire book? Well, it's because we believe that by exploring it, you can find hope and purpose and words to orient your life by. Because we're convinced that these words are supernatural. So why call a series things Jesus didn't say? We're telling you to focus on some words. Well, that's a good question. The thing is, a lot of us live our lives with a few assumptions about life that are never promised or guaranteed. Many people think the universe operates on a system of goodness or fairness that doesn't actually exist and was never promised by God. We all, if we're honest, want a life filled with happiness. And when we're not experiencing happiness, life doesn't seem fair. We question if we're doing something wrong. In many ways, life isn't fair, but who said it should be? We'll be addressing that topic in our last week of this series. But we all have thoughts and opinions on how life should be and how it should go. What we need is a source of truth to help regulate our feelings, to dispel rumors, and to guide us on how to live. And for us, we're convinced Jesus' words do just that. Jesus' words help us navigate the difficulties in life. Jesus himself makes a bold claim in John 14, 6. He says there, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And that little statement from Jesus says three things. As the way, he is our path to follow to get to the Father. As the truth, he is the ultimate Snopes.com. That's that fact-checking website you can go to whenever you read something really shocking on the internet to see if it's true. That's what Jesus' words do. That's our authority, our measuring stick, the ultimate dictionary. It's the standard in which we can find certainty as we navigate our lives. And as the life... We find fulfillment in this life and in eternity through him. All this is true, or Jesus is crazy, or he's a liar, or he is what Jesus recorded in the beginning of his letter, that Jesus was God. We need to lean into this question, who is Jesus really? 
We cannot and should not sit on the periphery and just pretend that he's a good dude, worth listening to sometimes, taking some of what he said as truth. No, we should investigate it because if he's telling the truth, if he is truth, well, it's like changing. Well, I'm convinced that Jesus' words are supernatural and that they infuse life with power into our existence. It's important when we compare our words, thoughts, opinions against what Jesus actually did say, when we do this, then we do find a life that's full of significance, purpose, and meaning. This week, we are addressing the idea, things Jesus didn't say. And that thing this week is do what makes you happy. That's our topic today. Just for clarity, Jesus never said, do what makes you happy. But at some point or another, we've all allowed our pursuit of happiness to lead us in the direction of our life. It's natural for all of us to pursue things that make us happy or comfortable, but a life pursuing happiness, it can be life that abandons the notion of delayed gratification, waiting on something to materialize at its proper time. And for all of us, some of our biggest regrets, those things that we wish we could go back in time and have a do-over, they started with a simple pursuit of happiness. Maybe you dated someone, took a job, made a friend, took a class, joined a group with good intentions, but things then went south. One of mine happened two days after my 20th birthday. The year was 1997, and my 1982 S10 pickup engine blew up on my birthday. Two days later, I was at a car dealership purchasing a brand new car. Why? Well, my boss, he drove new cars. And I was a retail store manager. I liked nice things. My parents, they were old school. They believed that when you bought a car, you should actually be able to afford it. Nah, that's not how you do it, right? I was 20. I needed a good, reliable car, and so I followed the advice of my store manager, and I was at the Honda dealership. At first, I was looking at Civics, but the salesman was eager to show me a few Honda Accords. This trusted salesman was right. The Civic was nice, but for the long haul, better suspension, sunroof, a sound system, the special edition Accord really was much more practical. I still remember sitting at the dealership in the sales manager's offices with my parents, who needed to be there because I couldn't get the car without them co-signing the loan. And the sales manager made the mistake of trying to tell my dad a joke and then try to convince him of how great a value I was getting. But dad, he didn't even smirk. In fact, I think he did one of these. As he leaned in and signed this piece of paper that gave his son a car that was twice as nice as his, that's how it went down. Driving the car home felt so good. I remember receiving the payment book back from 1997. It was $385.17 a month. I can remember that because I used to use this thing called paper to write checks, and I would mail them every month. My insurance, guess what it cost? Well, it was right around $425 a month. Yes, you heard that correctly. Driving a new car as a 20-year-old male was a high price to pay, but I needed this. After all, I could afford to pay $725 a month because I was living at my parents' house rent-free. But then one day, I decided to move out and go off to school and then realized I couldn't afford my car anymore. It was decision time. Instead of selling, my parents graciously bailed me out of that debt and covered nearly my last two years of payments, allowing me to keep the car. Yes, I'm spoiled, but I remember what it felt like. I felt bad. I felt shame. I felt a big sense of gratitude for my parents. Now, if you can afford a car, I'm not knocking you at all. But in hindsight, I could afford a car payment but I could not afford that car. And there's a difference, isn't there? You would not be able to talk me out of it because I was following my heart. I was following my mentor who told me, man, this car is sweet, you should definitely get it. And so I did. 
Following happiness can get us into trouble. Following the advice of friends may not lead us to the best outcome. But unfortunately, this isn't a lesson you learn once and it's universally applied, right? It's a lesson we keep learning over and over again throughout life. You get this, happiness pursued by a feeling doesn't always work out so well. I'm sure you can think of a time or a date on the calendar or a season of life when you followed your heart and it costs you a lot. You'd do anything for that do-over and maybe you've had someone bail you out like I did. Maybe not. Maybe you're still paying a hefty price for that decision. And to be clear, pursuing happiness isn't a bad thing. The point of today isn't three ways to make your life become miserable and hate it. Not at all. Today we'll be looking at John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. If you're following along in this version, it's on page 24. And at the end of the story, we will look specifically at what Jesus did not say. Because what he did say, it has the power and the potential to transform all our lives. So let's dive in. Early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. And here we see a typical day for Jesus. He found himself teaching another crowd that was leaning in, eager to hear what he had to say. We know it was early in the morning. We know it was at the temple, so folks that came there were eager to learn. He was sitting to teach, but we don't know what the subject was. Maybe he was teaching about prayer or worry or love. That we don't know. But we can get a feel for the calm, orderly, and serene scene. But it was about to get very unruly. Verse 3, it says, As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Now, I'm not sure who's watching this service with you, so I'll let you define some of the terms here. And because I don't know who you're watching with, I'll be conservative and sensitive in my language. But what has happened is a group of religious leaders, people with influence, people respected in that religious community, they interrupted Jesus' teaching by bringing a woman who was caught in the act in front of the crowd he was teaching. If you've heard this story before, we have a, a notion of taming down these details. But to put this in perspective, Jesus has a gathering of people all eager to hear. He was interrupted by a group of ministers from local congregations, and they bring in a woman presumably local, maybe they knew, to the front of the crowd in full display for all to see. Now, considering what she was doing only moments before, who knows what her appearance would be like, what she would be wearing or wrapped up in. But we know she would be humiliated. And then the leaders go on to say in verse 4, Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. Now, we are given insight into what is really going on here. This isn't about a woman and her sin. This is about trapping Jesus. So what kind of trap are they setting? Well, they are playing Jesus against two forms of authority, the law found in the scriptures and Roman law. In the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you can see for yourselves that the law stated that anyone caught committing adultery should be stoned. Adultery was a really big deal. It had severe consequences, but that Jewish law hadn't been enforced for centuries. It wasn't enforced currently because execution was illegal for Jews to enforce due to Roman law against murder. Hence, the trap. If Jesus said, let her go, they would say he had no regard for God's law. Hence, his claims of being sent from God couldn't line up. I'm sure they assumed this was the probable outcome because Jesus had a reputation of being a friend of sinners and tax collectors. He was known for his grace and forgiveness. But 
if Jesus were to surprise them and encourage the crowd to stone her, well, this literally would mean she would be put to death by throwing stones, and then he would no longer be seen as a grace-filled teacher, and they would report him to Rome for breaking their law, which in turn would end his ministry because he would be put to death himself. This seemed like a lose-lose. So what does Jesus do? He doodles. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. What in the world? Jesus is teaching. People are loving it. Here comes a posse demanding justice. And Jesus just dips. Like literally, he dips and writes on the ground. Strange. Odd. Why isn't he taking them seriously? Is he taking them seriously? Well, Jesus is no doubt bothered by the way these religious leaders are playing this woman as a pawn in their attempt to trap him. Yes, the law says that adulterers should be stoned, but it says the man and the woman should be stoned. Why do they just bring the woman? Well, you don't have to think very hard in that one because men are often given the boys will be boys forgiveness clause. However you frame it, they weren't taking the law seriously enough if they were only bringing the woman. But rather than take this opportunity to review their plan, to consider why Jesus may be ignoring them, instead, they press on harder with intensity. In verse 7, they kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. What a response. Checkmate for Jesus. Jesus made a significant statement here about judging others. In legal terms, the law gave them the right to stone her. Jesus acknowledges this and is upholding God's law, the Levitical law that they clung to. But he gave quite the qualifier to those ready to throw stones. He said, let the perfect one among you throw the first stone. He raises the stakes here and takes the conversation from a legal one, all about the law, keeping things black and white, and he raises it to a spiritual conversation. What is sin and how should we deal with it? We don't know what Jesus wrote. Some speculate he was writing down their names and their sins. Maybe it was, Rabbi Rob, you have a problem with gossip, and that's why we're here today. Teacher Thomas, you drink too much, but not in moderation. Pharisee Paul, you're a hothead. And he goes down the line and writes something about everyone. That's a possibility, maybe. I've never read this, but I wonder if he wrote the words he spoke at the Sermon on the Mount about adultery recorded in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. There he says, But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That has the ability to stop any of us in our tracks. And again, it's all speculation what he wrote, but it was his words that he spoke that stopped them in the track. They got the message loud and clear. In verse 9 we read, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. You know, after hearing Jesus' voice, the next thing you hear are their feet shuffling away. Jesus' teaching was interrupted that day, earlier that morning, when one large mob came in like a stampede, but now in the quiet, they begin leaving one by one, feeling humbled and awkward themselves. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. What Jesus said here is powerful and life-changing. We don't like to use the word sin a lot, but a good definition of sin is an action or a thought that goes against God's divine law. Why do we sin? Well, there are lots of reasons. But ultimately, sin promises satisfaction 
at the cost of disobeying God. We don't know this woman's story. The details are missing. Was this a fair relationship she got herself caught up in and this was the first time they came together physically? Was this an ongoing relationship? Was it linked to her profession? Was it out of desperation? You know, I find the lack of details here actually helpful because it keeps us from thinking about her life and helps us to think about what really matters in this story, and that's Jesus' response to her. And his words were, I don't condemn you. You know, maybe you've had a sin that has been made public. You may struggle with the sin attached to a label. Maybe you know exactly what it feels like to be brought in front of a crowd and have felt shame from a family member or friends or school or co-workers. Maybe you've committed or are involved in a sin that you hope no one ever discovers. Right now, it's a secret, and you hope it stays that way. And to read this story, you're mortified of the idea of being brought out or caught up in front of a crowd. And when we feel that way, we are crushed by guilt and feelings of shame. And you wonder, what would happen if you were found out? In your mind, you see the crowd, and you envision Jesus looking at you with disappointment, with frustration, that he's filled with anger. But you know what? Because of what is recorded here in the book of John, we don't have to imagine what Jesus would do. Because the truth of this narrative really does set us free. We know how Jesus would respond if he found out our secret sins, or how he would respond to the sin that we've already committed, and this is what he would say. He would say, I don't condemn you. You know, Jesus didn't give this woman a long speech. He didn't spell out the damage she had caused. He didn't shame her. In this divine way, she was seeking forgiveness, and Jesus granted to her. You see this play out again and again in the Gospels, and you can see it play out again in your own life. Jesus already sees what we've done. He knows what we've done. He knows all our sins, and he desires to forgive us. Again, it's important to recognize what Jesus does say here. He says, I don't condemn you. Here you'll find that he is full of grace. This is an offer of salvation, the offer of redemption, of forgiveness, of love, and grace. But he does say something else. He adds, go and sin no more. You know, Jesus doesn't say to her, neither do I condemn you. Now go back and do what you were doing. Go and pursue happiness at any cost, even if it means sinning. No, Jesus is calling her to a pure form of happiness, a life with accountability, obedience to him and to God, and to sanctification or holiness. Sanctification is this big word, which means this pursuing of becoming more and more God-like and God-honoring with her decisions and actions. It's the idea here that she is to set her life apart for God's purposes and pursue his best in her life going forward. This is what he also says to each of us. Now, I want to end this message today with three simple points. The first point is, notice how Jesus responds to our sin. This week I came across this post, the only one qualified to ever throw a stone didn't. You know, Jesus understands that we're not going to be perfect. That's why he came and offered his life for us. But he doesn't want us to continue to live in sin. We see him extend grace, a gift of forgiveness, but he also gives truth, a standard to live by. Whether you recognize your sin problem or not, you have one. However, there's a difference with how a Christ follower should respond to sin. When a follower of Jesus sins, including myself, we need to run towards God, not try to hide from him. You know, that plan didn't work out for the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned, and it will not work for us. Sin is fleeting, and whenever we pursue it, we pursue pleasure instead of God, it always comes out empty. 
It might take a while, but it might even be for the next life, but it will prove to be empty and shallow and will rob us of pure happiness. Secondly, we need to notice how we respond to our own sin and to the sin of others. You know, it could be tempting to identify this target sin of someone else, to go on a rant about someone else's particular sin, to obsess over how they should do things differently and how they can help out and, and all the ramifications of this and the shrapnel of it and how awful it is. And want to bring it up to other people. But the moment we focus on someone else's sin at the expense of our own, we are doing a terrible disservice to the community. We should not condemn one another. We should be willing to help one another. We need to be a community committed to helping one another navigate both our own destructive tendencies and the tendencies of others. You know, if you're holding a rock ready to launch it at someone else, take a moment, consider your own sinfulness, and I'll give you a hint, you're not sinless. Neither am I. Perhaps you're having a hard time forgiving yourself. You need to accept and embrace forgiveness in order to move on in your own life. Hear Jesus' words for yourself. I do not condemn you. And with thanksgiving, allow him to change your life. And when we embrace our own forgiveness, it's so much easier to forgive others. The third thing is we need to pursue wholeness. You know, we're consumed with the pursuit of happiness, but what we need to be consumed with is a pursuit of holiness. Jerry Bridges in his book, Pursuit of Holiness, he talks about the joint venture between God and a farmer. He talks about the obligations that a farmer has that he needs to, if he wants to plant and grow a harvest, he needs to plow the field, plant the seed, do all of these preparatory things, but ultimately knowing he can't make things grow. He's relying on God to provide sunlight, and he needs God to provide the water. And there are things that he cannot provide that only God can provide, but God's not willing to plow the field and plant the seed. And he talks about it as this joint venture. Listen to this quote now from Jerry Bridges. Farming is a joint venture between God and the farmer. The farmer cannot do what God must do. And God will not do what the farmer should do. We can say just as accurately that the pursuit of holiness is a joint venture between God and the Christian. No one can attain any degree of holiness without God working in his life. But just as surely, no one will attain it without effort on his own part. God has made it possible for us to walk in holiness, but he has given to us the responsibility of doing the walking. He does not do that for us. That's just a beautiful reminder of the partnership we need to have with God if we're pursuing true happiness. I remember I was at a conference back in early 2000s, and this quote really stood out to me, and it said, there is no pillow softer than the pillow of a clear conscience. I'm not sure what that really means. I just know that if you go to bed without the weight of secrets or the weight of these compromises that we continue to make because we're pursuing this happiness at the expense of sin, at the expense of our relationship with God, then it just gets us into trouble. And it doesn't produce real happiness that lasts. It's just this temporary fleeting happiness. But when we pursue holiness, when we come together and we encourage other people in this venture, it's a beautiful thing. I want you to keep this conversation going and this message going in your mind by reflecting on these three questions. One, where do I need to receive forgiveness in my own life? Two, where do I need to extend forgiveness? And three, who can I talk to about my own journey? Let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much for the opportunity to come together to explore what it is to receive forgiveness and then to be called to a higher standard. God, we cannot hide our sin from you. So for that, God, we understand that we need a Savior. Thank you for sending Jesus 
Thank you for allowing him to pay the penalty for our sin if we just simply come to him and ask. God, we believe that who you are, we believe in your goodness, and we believe you have the power to change us from within. So God, do that today. Do a work in us and through us. We love you and we're thankful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us. We hope something you heard today will draw you closer to God and encourage you to know him better. If you found this message podcast helpful, please subscribe, write a review, and consider sharing it with someone else. If there is anything we can do for you, a question we could talk through with you, a prayer we could say on your behalf, or a need you have, please don't hesitate to let us know. We are better together. Please connect with us soon. Take care.